0: You are tuned into The Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we are continuing our short mini-series on the Bible, what to believe and what to leave. So at The Constructionist, we encourage a worldview that is built on the principles of Christ, and in this episode, we're examining the Bible through a clear and honest lens. Now for some, we're probably ruining the Bible. For you who talk about the old stories of the Old Testament and a few of the New Testament and... We give some perspectives that may go against what you've learned on the flannel graphs in your Sunday school, so that might be a problem. Yet by doing so, we hope to offer insights and perspectives that will help you in your own journey towards a greater understanding of love and compassion for yourself and others. So we want to assure you that in tonight's episode, we're not fabricating anything, as many have done and any information or ideas we want to give you references to those where we're getting them and so if you have questions about that Please don't hesitate to message us on the direct messaging or underneath this show uh, in the uh, comment section underneath the social media platform you're listening to. So our goal is to provide an honest and authentic perspective on our examination. So this is our thinking space where we're presenting ideas and thoughts. And tonight we are making a best attempt to explain the story of Noah and some practical thoughts and theologies to live by. So if you enjoy the Constructionist Podcast and want to support us financially, please follow the link in the chat or show notes on the social media platform you're listening to. Visit our Give page. So you can. your support will enable us to continue producing high-quality content like this. So important though, we want to hear from you, we want to engage with you, we believe that our interactions and discussions with listeners like you, we will be able to continue to learn and grow together and getting your feedback questions and ideas that are important to us. We value that. We're excited to build a community around a shared exploration of what we call a communal hermeneutic. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us and let us know what you think. All right, Sherea and Jake, thanks for joining us. Tonight we are covering the story of Noah. Now there's a lot of thoughts around Noah and the actual historical idea was it a historical story is it a historical accurate event or does it have different meaning is there a different meaning to it i would say that right now first of all if you believe that the story of noah is historical you can and if you don't believe the story of Noah is historical, you can also believe that and no one is condemning anybody or judging anybody for their beliefs. But we want to give you some perspectives tonight that will help maybe sharpen some things and expand, maybe even blow your mind a little bit, about where some of these stories might have been adopted from or, co- or directly come from using actual exact lines and potentially the characters involved are the exact same people. So we want to give you some information tonight that you can explore yourself and maybe discover some new truths for you. So we want to encourage you to do that. So we're not just giving answers to you or just shoving things down um, towards you. We want to uh, give you space to think as well. And so tonight with the story of Noah, it's sometimes a controversial topic between the literalist and the, I guess, the literary narrative metaphor people. And so sometimes those debates get pretty heated of whether this is a historical accurate event. Now, what we do know is this about the book uh, or the book of Genesis and the story of Noah. In about 2900 before Common Era, some people call that B.C. or B.C.E., so 2900 B.C.E. or B.C., there was some sort of flood. In certain studies, archaeological studies and digs, they have brought up, well, they dug holes and brought up sediment to show that there was some sort of cataclysmic type devastating flood in the region of Mesopotamia, basically around that time. So so in the 1920s, they did some excavation around some of these sites called Ur and Kish to discover where they found flood deposits. Um, they, they claimed that this split some eras of time where we had a pre-flood era and a post-flood So there's evidences of flood like in 1959 and 55. There were some other digs where in this area that they definitely found. Well, at the time, they definitely found just maybe some evidence of some sort of flood over a long period of time up to 1964. They found that this flood was actually a very large event. To say that 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 event that they discovered in 2900 BCE, that is not to say that that was necessarily a whole world event. It was isolated in the Mesopotamia area, and it was around that time, probably killed a lot of people or wiped off some lots of vegetation and covered the earth to the point that the sediment that was left was about 11 feet thick. So that's a big flood. So we know that this geological idea that a flood did happen in 2900 BCE. Now, let's go from there. Let's let's start exploring this story of Noah. We're going to read chapter seven of, Oops. sorry, no, you're fine. There we go.
1: Um, I can read. Um, so the story of Noah actually starts in chapter six, five, and goes all the way through chapter nine. We're not gonna do that because it's a very long passage, Um, but basically chapter six is God giving instructions to Noah to build the ark. Chapter seven is what we're gonna read. Um, Yeah, I'll just read that now. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark with your whole household because among this generation, I've seen that you are a moral man. From every clean animal take seven pairs, a male and his mate, and from every unclean animal take one pair, a male and his mate, and from the birds in the sky as well, take seven pairs, male and female, so that their offspring will survive throughout the earth. In seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. I will wipe off from the fertile land every living thing that I have made. Noah did everything the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters arrived on earth. Noah, his sons, his wife, his sons' wives with him entered the ark to escape the flood waters. From the clean and unclean animals, from the birds and everything crawling on the ground, two of each, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, just as God commanded Noah. After seven days, the flood waters arrived on the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day, On that day, all the springs of the deep sea erupted and the windows in the skies opened. It rained upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. That same day, Noah with his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's wife, and his son's three wives went into the ark. They and every kind of animal, every kind of livestock, every kind that crawls on the ground, every kind of bird, they came to Noah and entered the ark, two of every creature that breathes male and female of every creature went in just as god commanded him then the lord closed the door behind them the flood remained on the earth for 40 days the waters rose lifted the ark and it rode high above the earth the waters rose and spread out over the earth the ark floated on the surface of the waters the waters rose even higher over the earth they covered all the highest mountains under the sky The waters rose 23 feet high, covering the mountains. Every creature took its last breath, the things crawling on the ground, birds, livestock, wild animals, everything swarming on the ground, and every human being. Everything on dry land with life's breath in its nostrils died. God wiped away every living thing that was on the fertile land, from human beings, to livestock, to crawling things, to birds in the sky. They were wiped off the earth. Only Noah and those with him in the ark were left. The waters rose over the earth for 150 days. Do you want to keep going through chapter eight or just recap? Okay.
0: I think just so recap- chapter eight. Thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Chapter eight is as the waters recede. Um, Noah sends out some birds to see if there's dry land yet. Eventually there is. Uh, the ark comes to rest. And then chapter nine is... Um, Noah gives thanks for deliverance, plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and then weirdness happens with his son.
0: <laughs> All right. So <clears throat> to do a little more recap on this, because I think it's important, just the idea of Genesis. And what we know is that the, the first books of the Bible were at least compiled at some, in some form. Um, In exile in Babylonian captivity and in this Babylonian captivity people still lived in tribes and so you had multiple tribes living sometimes way separate and so certain stories were told in a certain fashion and those might be slightly different than other stories and other tribes, but eventually those stories came together in what we know as the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible. So <clears throat> first to say that the first five books of the Bible or the first books of the Bible or Genesis or Exodus was just penned by, no, or penned by Moses is pretty much an inaccurate statement because we know that these stories were compiled over a long period of time, but mostly compiled in exile in this Babylonian captivity. But what we do know, which shows even more evidence of this, is these stories are really in a counter-narrative form to other stories that were in existence.
1: And hey Kevin? Yeah. Before we get there, can I give an example that I noticed um, as we were reading? Yes. Like two of the two stories being brought together. So in the early part of the chapter, um, you have two of every unclean animal and seven of every clean animal. Yes. Are being brought into the ark. But then later on in, I think it was verse 15. It just says two of every animal.
0: Right. Two of every creature that breathes. So one is specific. One is general.
1: Yeah, but I think that could be one of these scenes where we have two different narratives stitched together, like they're the same yeah. story, but they're being told in different ways.
0: Yes, perfect, thank you for that.
1: So that's just one way it shows up in the text.
0: <clears throat> one, Yeah, and you can see that it is a mashing like Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where you have these two different stories, but they're the similar story or they're the same but they're written in a way that's counter narrative to some other story that's out there and the the idea of genesis is like a long version of the the same story it's a creation story and it's told in multiple forms so it's told and in in the the original story of creation, and then it's retold in Noah, because Noah we know is a recreation story. So it's told in a different fashion in Noah. Uh, But it's in a counter-type narrative written form, um, because there was another document out there called the Enuma Elish. And the Enuma Elish is the Babylonian version of creation. So if you have the Babylonian version of creation and the Enuma Elish kind of rolling around and people are picking up that magazine and they're like, oh, wow, look at this, what's what's being printed? Um, we have to tell our story. So it's it's almost like, oh, okay, so you're going to tell this story. Well, we have to tell this story. And this is how our God shows up. This is how Yahweh shows up in in our story. So whether or not the the authors of Genesis were familiar with Enuma Elish or not. There's no proof that, you know, that story was you know put on their front doorstep as a news article, newspaper. Um, There's no evidence of that, but what there is evidence for is they lived in a very common context or a common culture where those stories at least would have been told and they would have been perpetuated as our God is better or, you know, my God is better than your God. And so the God of Genesis basically simply speaks a a existence into being that Yahweh is in control, that Yahweh is the creator versus some other God that the Babylonians were speaking was the creator. So I just wanted to bring that up first because... There are other stories that the Bible seems like it was written in a contra-narrative, a contra-like version. And so when we read this, uh, the story of Noah, we can see that as well, which we're going to cover here in a few minutes.
2: I think as well, what we pointed out when we did our Exodus series a while ago now is that Genesis and Exodus were written To be the same story And so Same author, same narrative And one of the main motifs throughout both Is that God is bigger than Blank And so In this one it would be God is bigger than the uh, Than the Mesopotamian Folklore story That's floating around God is bigger than Marduk um, is the God's name Marduk or even even God placed Noah there instead of um, who we'll get to a little bit later. Right. So it's the God is bigger than.
0: So let's first talk through a couple of ideas that I think are important. Every time you see water in Hebrew literature, you have a signal. And that signal is rebirth, recreation, renewal, redemption, salvation. So there's an idea of salvation, renewal, and rebirth in uh, this story. One of my favorite authors is Walter Brueggemann. And Walter Brueggemann definitely tells the the story that this is a, you had this this old way of doing things and now you have a new way of doing things. And so this whole story is built on this idea of renewal centered around water. And so water is a creative substance. Water is, well, the, considered the creative substance. And so you see that in Genesis and you also see that here in the story of Noah, and you see that in the book of Exodus with the Red Sea. You see it all throughout the Old Testament, and you see it in the New Testament with, eventually, you see that with water baptism and the church. So so definitely the idea of water is a signal, and that's the first thing that I just wanted to make sure to point out. Do you guys have any other thoughts about signals in this passage or in this chapter that we need to pay attention Um, to?
1: I just want to piggyback on that idea of water, um, because something we're going to talk about is that there are a lot of cultures who have flood stories. And for Mm -hmm. many of those cultures, not necessarily all of them, um, the flood story is also an origin story or a creation story. so that again kind of links this idea of water to Mm -hmm. creation um, in a broader cultural sense than just the Bible Mm
2: -hmm. I think the God is bigger than that would be a motif that goes through it water as recreation Um, how the land and earth is treated Mm -hmm. is important um yeah, that's good the for other
0: them. the other signal that ties this story to another recreation story is the ark the teva and the teva was a wood boat right that was put together with pitch and that tar that pitch kind of held the, the the structure together that same structure is seen in the story of exodus where moses is put in the water in a teva and that is also an ark. so moses just like noah is another adam the adam then moses becomes this other adam the adam so we see that that the second and the third type adam we see this as um as the carrier which then if you which you know you it's not called a teva in the new testament but it makes a lot of sense that this feeding trough or this carrier holds the baby Jesus um, in in the cloth and the this kind of scene manger scene mm-hmm. so so the idea of the Teva is the holder of the second, third, fourth Adam and the first um
2: of God's like apex
0: of creation. So
2: So you have So yeah, the Moses ark, you have the ark of the covenant, yes as well. Did, did you say that? Okay, yeah. No, I didn't say ark of the covenant, but that's a big one. <laughs> and then you had Jesus ark
0: mm-hmm. in the manger. Right. So what's unnerving about the story of Noah is, for me, is after reading Walter Brueggemann and his thoughts on Noah, is there's very little subsequent testimony of Noah in the rest of the Bible. We see it in Ezekiel 14. Um, There's references to Noah. But there's challenges that bring up questions. We're going to go over that a little bit later. But there's challenges that bring up lots of questions because if this was this cataclysmic event, that it would have been referenced at least in, you know, some significant ways through scripture, um, and if that's the case, Exodus has more evidence that it happened than Noah happened. And so so just in the subsequent testimony or references to the story. So if it was a big deal, then people would have made it a big deal. Um, so, so there's more of a case of theology, and Sheree is going to take this portion. There's more of a case of theology here than there's a case of historicity. Because if you just focus on historicity, I think you're you're just lost in the weeds and there's no answer to that. You're not going to be able to prove that, not prove that. It's just, it's just not, it's just a rabbit hole that we're going down and trying to find the ark on mountains and trying to recreate arcs and trying to just relive this story. Like it actually like existed. You're, we're missing the theology of it. And so in the case of this, that God is bigger, like Jake's case of God is bigger, that there's a reversal that that the theology of reversal the theology of re-love remembrance re-blessing rejoicing there's this re-blessing there's a re rejoice re-bless so there's a change in in the world system at the at some point and so so there's two thoughts that i have going to sharia's theology here is the first thought is there was some flood that existed 2900 and now we have this story of noah that the theology of noah is more important than the historicity of noah so let's talk about the theology a little bit sure i take this section because i really i really do find this interesting i love how you put this together
1: okay um are you talking about the rainbow and john yes. c collins is that where we are okay
0: yeah that's where we're at
1: okay um so we talked a little bit um i think it was two weeks ago in genesis one um that we had a creation story and it was in contrast to the Babylonian creation story. So in the Babylonian creation story, you have Marduk who is defeating these other gods and creating the earth and all its inhabitants out of the dismembered body parts of these gods, um, including um, one of them is the like the dragon goddess Tiamat, um, who is represented by water. And so some folks talk about, um, Genesis 1 creation story as a contrast to that Babylonian story in which God doesn't create with violence, God creates with peace. Um, That, I think, comes from Walter Wink, but I'm not positive. Um, But then there's another perspective on this that comes from a theologian named C. John Collins, who actually does see God creating with violence in the Genesis 1 narrative in very much the same way the Babylonian narrative occurs. Um, and one of the uh, specifics of that is the dividing of the waters of the sky and the waters of the earth. And that division of the waters is essentially uh, dividing up the dragon goddess Tiamat, who is represented by water. And so in that case, we do have. Um, a response to the Babylonian creation story, but it's not one of peace over violence. It's one of our God is mightier than your God. Mm. So if we bring that forward into the Noah story, um, we have a situation where God has created this world out of violence. God looks at what's going on in the world, and humans have become violent, and God is essentially horrified with how creation has gone. And so God destroys everything but Noah and his family and a few animals and starts again. And at the end of the Noah story, God places a rainbow in the sky and that that word for bow is the same word as bow and arrow. It's -hmm. the same word in Hebrew, it's the same word in English. So God places God's bow in the sky as a sign of not being willing to destroy the earth anymore and um, it's at this point that God chooses to give up violence. So this is a story in which God changes or at least we see the perspective of the Israelites, the Israelites perspective of God changing. Um, so there you go. That's a tough thing to wrestle with because we don't like the idea of God being violent.
0: No. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> so the change, there's a significant change, I guess, from the God of pre-Noah to post Noah, Symbolized by this bow that God hangs, like retires retires
2: violence, I guess, right? I I guess I don't know mm-hmm. why it can't be both. Like God had the first creation, the order out of chaos. Yeah. In peace. And then the God that turns into the destructive mode moves into Oops. violence. Mm-hmm. At the end of that probably can't bear it anymore. And so Puts up the bow. Hmm. I oh, don't know why it can't be both. Maybe can be.
0: I mean, why not? really, like, we, yeah, we don't know, but it could be.
1: What comes up for me with that idea of order, um, because of my <clears throat> historical and cultural context, is law and order, right? So, this need to impose order on what is viewed as a chaotic populace. Um, And that has me a little bit suspicious because there is violence within a law and order system. It's just obscured.
0: Hmm. So let's give some, we can talk more about the theology of, Noah and, and, and put that together. But we're, we're kind of building a case here a little bit because, and, and we'll continue with that, that type of topic. So, in the Noah story, in this chapter 6, 7, 8 story of Genesis, We know that Genesis was compiled. We know that Genesis was compiled in uh, exile. We know that there's some counter narrative going on to the Babylonian other stories. Um, And so there's other ideas out there that and this this shows that our God is better than your God. So so we know that that. Those thoughts are happening. There is a story about that great Mesopotamia flood in 2900. And that story is the Sumerian story, the Sumerian flood story, that's written in the Eridu Genesis. The Eridu Genesis. I'm pronouncing that the best that I can. The Ereidu Genesis. Genesis. This Genesis story is the oldest, basically Mesopotamian text that talks about the great flood. And that great flood, there was a king that survived that great flood by the name of Arut. Excuse me, Zayud Surah. Sura is the only survivor and out of that that person or out of that community that survives because his family came with that therefore you had a new populated um, earth. So that story myth
2: myth, myth, myth,
0: myth mythicized. <laughs> mythicized thank you. that story mythicized over time becomes... Our God did this. Now there was a flood, but there's no spiritual connection to that flood, just you know, geology. So science and geology happened, a little bit of biology then occurs afterwards, and boom, we have you know new new earth. So, but there's no spiritual ideas behind it. So in the ancient world had to spiritualize their stories or the or the events to give honor to God and to give blame to the gods of why basically this flood happens and all these people die and why a new earth is created. So God has to, God has to be the one, um, God has to be the one that, that gets, you know, the, the, the accolades, and sometimes the blame. So we have this story that is the story of the Mesopotamian. It's the oldest flood story, the Sumerian story, and that story written a very long time ago. Um, That story then is adopted, though. That story then is evolved into another story that we know. Then, in later works, the Atrahasis. The Atrahasis is the 17th century story, and then the Epic of Gilgamesh is well. Actually, that's the the older story, and the Atrahasis is the is the newer, yeah. recent, I guess the newer story um, of these three. So you have the Sumerian story, the Epic of Gilgamesh, and the Atrahasis. So the place, the the city of of the Mesopotamian story is the Shiropak. And then the instructions of Shiropak, there is this mention of the Sumerian king, the Zayud and such. Also in the Eridu Genesis. You have these mentions, but then those names are carried forward in such things like the Epic of Gilgamesh. So I want to read, if I can, if we have time, the Epic of Gilgamesh and the story of this event. And so I'm going to read this tonight, and I just want you to listen and maybe pick up on some cues and thoughts that you might have because of this story. It goes like this, the ship which you shall build, let her dimensions be measured off. Let her width and length be equal. Ten dozen cubits, each was the height of her walls. Ten dozen cubits, each were the edges around her. Thrice thirty-six hundred measures of pitch I poured in the oven. Thrice thirty-six hundred measures of tar did I pour out inside her. What living creatures I had I loaded upon her. I made, I made go aboard all my family and kin, beasts of the steep, wild animals of the steep. The sea grew calm, the tempest grew still, the deluge ceased. I looked at the weather, stillness reigned, and all of mankind had turned into clay. The landscape was flat as a terrace. I opened the hatch, daylight fell upon my face. The boat rested on Mount Zimush. Nemush. Not Zimush. Nemush. Mount Zimush held the boat fast, not allowing it to move. One day, a second day, Mount Nemush held the boat fast, not allowing it to move. A third day, a fourth day, Mount Nemush held the boat fast, not allowing it to move. A fifth day, a sixth day, Mount Nemush held the boat fast, not allowing it to move. When the seventh day arises, I released a dove to go free. The dove went and returned. No landing place came to view, it turned back. I released a swallow to go free. The swallow went and returned. No landing place came to view, it turned back. I sent a raven to go free. The raven went forth, saw the ebbing of the waters, it ate, circled, left droppings, and did not turn back. So that's the epic of Gilgamesh and the story of their version of the story of this Mesopotamian, um, this Mesopotamian flood. So, let's sounds stop familiar. there. Yeah, sounds familiar. So let's stop for a minute. Sure, Jake. You want to recap? And make sure that we are not losing people in this, because I want to make sure that everyone is understanding where we are at, at this point in our teaching.
2: We're going through the flood narrative with the purpose, I think, to explain that it wasn't written in a vacuum. And so. We need to pull out theologies and ideas and uh, an ethics out of this, but not not historical events that happened and that when we get bogged down in the historicity of things, we lose the main point of what's being like taught. And so tonight mm-hmm. we're giving a an instruction on what other writings were present when the Old Testament was compiled, because it's a rather new book compared to a lot of the other texts that were floating around, like the instructions of Surapak or the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Egyptian Book of the Dead, and you have all these other ideas are floated into this into this this text that we carry, right? And one thing that we keep saying that is that. It, the The Jewish people in the first and second centuries bCE were not monotheists. They just worshipped one God. And so the stories that they they tell is how God is bigger than the other gods or their nation, Israel, the chosen nation, is is greater than the other nations around it, even when it's in captivity. I think that's You're that's right. also a theme that's happening is that. When, when the Israelite people are, are dispersed, they are still greater than the nations that do not know God. Yes. Yeah, so the the
0: story, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, that's like twenty one hundred BCE, and you have when
1: the exile is after five hundred eighty six right bce so that's a difference of almost 1500 years
0: right the book like in the, the egyptian flood story that book that's about 2181 bce
2: there is that's the book of the
0: heavenly story. huh
2: there is a chinese flood story as well around the same time period right mm-hmm. and
0: then you have like the egyptian It's called the book of the heavenly cow that's the 2181 um so you have these other stories. Oh, the instruction of Shuruppak is uh, 2000 BCE. So you have some quite old stories compared to... Now, there is a claim that the book of Genesis was penned down. Um, the oldest, like the earliest possibility, would be like 1400. More like 8600. And, and so the story um, in written form could be older in oral tradition, but we have to realize that this event happened as a flood, but there's a but there. There's a reason why this was written about that flood, and that's what people miss is we want to historically prove that the Noah story is an accurate historical piece of literature. Instead of really digging in, why was this even written? And, okay, so this flood existed, but why was it written about this flood? Therefore, if I could get to that question versus the historical accuracy of the story, if I could actually get to that question, why was this story written, then I can explore these other stories and not be so threatened. Because these other stories could be counter narratives upon counter narratives and Noah's story and the biblical narrative is a counter narrative to all of these other narratives. And, And it could have been that. Um, And I have no problem in saying that (laughs) and actually agreeing with that and saying that there is a great possibility. Whether the, the author of the book of Genesis and the Noah story, whether that author had a copy of the Epic of Gilgamesh, I have no idea. But I can tell you this, that the Epic of Gilgamesh and the story of Noah are so close together in were in translated words <laughs> that I sit there. They, okay. If they didn't have, they, they must've really like, they must've really collaborated at some degree um when they were penning this thing down. So if they didn't have a copy. They definitely had heard the story at some point, at least in oral tradition.
2: And they were influenced by such. And I think even the ancient kingdom of Israel and Judah, Mm -hmm. would have had texts floating back and forth from Mesopotamia.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: I think that's safe to say as well. I mean, we like to think that scripture was written in this, in this complete vacuum. Right. But it it was written in the context and people and, and lots of history surrounding it.
0: Right. Shreya, any other thoughts there?
1: I was just thinking that if you were to take Genesis as a literal historic text, right, you have to have the world being 6,000 years old, more or less, or you have to have, you know, the history starting about 6,000 BC. And then if you take the Noah story as history, that's only going to be what another thousand years maybe out from the creation story. So we're looking at 5,000 BCE. And the only, to my knowledge, the only archeological evidence we have of a flood occurring was what almost 3000 years after that in 2900 BCE. Right. So it, it doesn't work to take the Noah text as history because it's going to be set 3000 years too early.
0: Right. Okay. So let's go back then to the meaning of the story the uh, Mm -hmm. the theology of the story because the theology of the story or the meaning or the teaching of the story is more important and, and needs to be more important than, like, this is not a fairy tale. This is not a, this is not a story of, hey, Noah wins, and this is actually not a children's story. Um, I know people that have claimed that the, the Old Testament shouldn't be taught in Sunday school. So, so because it's, it's full of violence. I mean, think about, think about just the, the motif of the, the bow in the sky and God hanging up the violence, um, and saying no more, basically you can't get around God saying, I'm no longer going to wipe the entire world off the planet. I promise I won't kill you all ever again like that. I mean, that's like, that belongs in a, you know, Nicolas Cage movie somewhere. I mean, that is like just... Nicolas Cage. (laughs) That is just like a wild statement. Well, it's Nicolas Cage because of what happens after that with, you know, the weirdness. It gets really weird, um, the story. But so it's not a kid's story. But there are some things that make it very distinctly Hebrew. And... Number one, you have clean animals and unclean animals. So from every clean animal take seven pairs, a male and his mate, and from every unclean animal take one pair. So these poor unclean animals, you know these split hoofers or whatever, they just are like like we're gonna try to wipe you off the planet just by just taking one pair, you know, but we get seven pairs of clean animals. So here's a signaling for me when I say seven, right? I go okay. Seven complete days. God rested on the seventh. Seventh day is the Sabbath. Yeah, so now we have this seven here. What what do we think that actually is in reference to? Why seven and clean?
1: Is that a complete amount of animals?
0: I think that this means just enough. just enough the wholeness of of life there but in seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights
2: where else tonight? do we see
0: 40 days mm-hmm. and 40 nights Jesus
1: being tested in the wilderness right I think 40 um years, the elijah years yeah Elijah 40 years without rain is that correct
2: Yep. and then Moses was 40 years in Egypt 40 years in Midian and 40 years Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. desert Um, something I always question about the clean and unclean animals is why did why did God save everybody at that point everything like the unclean yeah why was the unclean even added yeah, that's a good that's
0: a semiotic trip right there that you need to take.
1: But also like so the story talks about humankind being wicked. What did the animals do?
2: <laughs> they eat their poop. <laughs> mhm.
0: Yeah. So we have clean and unclean animals being loaded onto the ark. We have this 7 days, after 7 days flood waters came. We have the 40 the 40 and the 40, 40 days, 40 nights. All of that is signaling to um, redemption, salvation, completeness, wholeness, uh, mm-hmm. the complete number <coughs> of creation. It all signals me to redemption. It signals me to salvation. It signals me to recreation. And so the recreation story motif is really important here because in the in the creation story it said that the waters were held back, like by a dome. And in this in this story, now we see the waters are being held back and they will be released. The floodgates will be opened and this water will be. Released again, so it's opening up the chaos again, to where we're going to see God is Lord over the chaos. God is Lord over just like the flies and the bugs and the frogs and the Mm -hmm. and the and the locusts and the boils and the blood in Exodus. We're going to see that that's the chaos in Exodus. If you go back to our Exodus series, this is again the the uh, the chaos. I guess, in this story, when the floodgates are opened. Any other thoughts there?
2: To make it distinctly Hebrew, um, the three birds, Hmm. ending with the bird of peace, the bird of of the spirit, where if you read the uh, Gogamesh, version Unapishim sends out the dove first where yeah. in the Hebrew version um it's the dove is is last and the one that is a spirit of God hovering over the waters to create and to bring <laughs> new creation. I mean it's 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 easy. That's low hanging fruit. Right.
0: Yeah. Low hanging fruit. Is that what you said? Yeah. <clears throat> mm mm-hmm. Yeah, so when I look at this, I see, oh, he waited seven more days and sent out the dove. So the, this this idea of seven is always here, um, just throughout and, and, and noodled throughout this scripture. So then there's this promise. Let's go back to that theology of violence. Mm-hmm. Because I think that that's, that's really important. Is God a violent God?
1: I think it seems like the Israelites had that perspective at this point
2: in time. <laughs> yeah. I think the Israelites wanted God to be a violent God.
0: Why? What, what's the point of that?
2: Um, like if you take liberation theology and that even, uh, physical violence and upheaval to bring about the freedom of people is justified violence.
0: Mm.
2: And so, uh, we see it here with, with, uh, the, the cleansing of the earth of Mm -hmm. humankind uh, you see it in the um, the Passover, where the s- spirit of God, or God, and that's why I have a hard time with God hanging up God's bow to end all violence, because you see mm-hmm. the next, like, in a few chapters on the road, God's killing all the firstborn of I- Egypt. Right. Um, some people have a workaround with that to say it wasn't God, it was God's angel that went in front Um, but if you read it closely as well as the spirit of God went throughout the whole camp and killed Mm -hmm. the uh, you have the cleansing of the Canaanites Mm -hmm. in the promised land. But you also
1: have um, the Egyptians being drowned in the Reed sea crossing.
2: And God had direct control over that.
1: Right. And that's Uh, like a direct parallel to the Noah story.
2: Mhm. You have I mean there's lo- there's lots of there's lots of of violence for freedom. Hmm. And I mm-hmm. think i to say that God is a is not a violent god is a very privileged perspective.
1: And also, I mean I believe that these texts are um, the thoughts and stories of a people who is trying to make sense of who they are and who God is. Um, And when when you're in exile, when your homeland has been besieged for however many years, and the horrors that go along with that, and then you're let out of your homeland, you're forced to live in another culture. Um, Mm -hmm. you may need to keep your own cultural identity markers secret for your own safety. Mm -hmm. Um, Like that's an immense amount of violence and trauma that you've undergone. And so at that point, of course you want God to overthrow the empire and you don't really care who's collateral damage. Mm
2: -hmm. But that God's the, the, God is the sum of the collective at that point Mm -hmm. how we how we view God is how we desire God to be and I think as well the Old Testament speaks to God towards that often
1: Mm hmm
2: like if you read Jeremiah as well I mean there is the violence of God is 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 dripping in that text.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: There's a there's a passage where it insinuates that God even rapes Israel. And so, what do we what do we do with those things? I I think not shying away from them, but really explaining that. You know, that's that's a narrative that's a national narrative perspective of how we we view God. Okay. And in our own national narrative, we view God a certain way as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So I want to give my opinion of it and then tell me what you think. Is God a violent God? <clears throat> My answer to that is, no, God is not a violent God. What I do know is God lets his children tell the story. And how children tell stories is limited by their minds and the culture in which they live. So if a child is telling the story, let's say, in school about their dad their dad no matter what telling another student that you don't want your dad to look bad so you're going to tell the story in a very heroic way and in a heroic way back then it would have been told in a very violent fashion because that's the context in which they lived and God over throwing wickedness and destroying. That's a very uh, middle school way of talking about your dad. And so when you when you read these stories, I would say God does allow his children to tell the story and that story is definitely bounded by cultural context and environment in which they lived because it's not until we get really older that we have a perspective on who our dads really are, you know, where we can show appreciation probably for the things that didn't matter back then, but certainly matter now. Like how our dad showed up for this or that, or didn't show up for this or that we have a perspective on that, that we can talk maturely about it. But back then we didn't talk maturely about it. So when you're in exile, when you're in captivity, when you have counter-narratives, when you're under fear, anxiety, insecurities, when you're trying to figure out how to write a counter-narrative to the story of Marduk or some other story that's floating around called the, the story of the water cow or whatever, right? <laughs> where you're, like, you're, you're dealing with all of these other things, you're going to come up with a pretty, pretty sensational story that I actually still believe is God's Word because, because what do dads do when dads hear the stories that are told about them and they sound really good, right? You don't correct those stories. (laughs) You go, Hey, I won. (laughs) I'm the hero, right? (laughs) And so, so I, so I look at these and sometimes they're sensational and sometimes they're like how possibly is this even real, like the story of Jonah, right? How possibly is this even, even a story that makes sense, right? Why is this even written? Um, I would say that the same as Noah. Now, that might blow some people's flannel graphs up, you know, the little stitched together um, Noah and the Ark little flannel graph thing that we used to play with, you know, that we let our kids play with now. Um, you know, that might blow that whole story up for you that, that God's not a violent God because maybe this story is just a story. And that's okay. And that's okay. And it has rich theology, has teaching, points me to Jesus, definitely points me to a deeper That version of the story points me to a deeper, more closer relationship with God. Than trying to find the boat up on top of a mountain somewhere in the world,
2: Mount Ararat, somewhere I'm sure,
0: somewhere a mountain there somewhere. Okay, any other thoughts? Closing remarks?
2: No, that was a lot. I hope people went yeah. with the big curve of that. There's a lots of flood narratives mm-hmm. that are almost verbatim
1: with lots of very intimidating and unfamiliar names.
0: Yes, very much so. I can't even pronounce them, which is okay. (laughs) All right. Sheree, any thoughts? Any more thoughts for tonight? Nope. Okay. All right. Thanks, you guys. Appreciate it. Good night, everybody.